Today is our last study in a series of messages that we have titled Letters to the Seven Churches. And these were messages that were based on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Letters that Christ wrote to um, seven local churches in Asia Minor. So, so far we have looked at Ephesus, the loveless church. We looked at Smyrna, the suffering church. Looked at Pergamum, the incomplete church, Thyatira, the tolerant church, the corrupt church. We looked at Sardis, church of the living dead, Philadelphia, the faithful church. And today we examine the seventh of these letters to the church in Laodicea, um, which I've titled the useless church. So let's read together. Christ's message to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may cloth yourselves And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we come to the the last of these letters to these churches, we pray, Lord, that we would not become complacent. Lord, that we would hear what the Spirit says to us, New Life Church. We thank you, Lord, for recording in your word these letters that we may learn from. And we know all Scripture is inspired. And we know all Scripture is profitable for correction and training in righteousness, for our admonition. So we pray this morning, Lord, that we would pay attention. We pray, Father, that we would hear your word as the scriptures say, but that we would not just be listeners, Lord, that we would be doers as well. So, Lord, we realize, Lord, that there are traits and characteristics of every single one of these churches that we have studied that we can relate to, good traits, negative traits. Father, we want to be a church, Lord, that is not useless. Father, we want to be a church that is very useful for your kingdom. So we pray, Lord, that you would show us truth this morning, that you would open our eyes, 
that we would not be blind, Lord, to the truths that are here in your word, that your word, Lord, would convict us of our sin. Pray that your word would comfort us, Lord, where we need to be comforted. Your spirit would encourage us this morning to continue pursuing you. We thank you this morning, Lord, for your son, Jesus. Just as we sang, Lord, we are grateful for sending Jesus, the Savior of the world, who would die for us and pay the penalty for our sins. So, Lord, we pray today, may he receive the glory from our response as we study your word together. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So George Bonner makes a living through surveys. And what makes him unique is that his surveys are on exclusively Christian topics. He recently did a poll on the present state of the church in the USA. So I'm not picking on the Americans here this morning. We can all relate to this, I'm sure. But he did a poll and 90% of the participants, the American participants, claim to be Christian. He then did another poll and he asked certain Christian concepts. Uh, He asked Christians what Jesus' great commission meant and what it was from Matthew chapter 28. And 86% responded with the wrong answer or they did not know. He then asked what John 3.16 said and 75% of the people did not know. He then asked what the gospel was, and 31% said they did not know. So I don't think the state of Christianity in the, in the U.S. is very much different from many other churches in other parts of the world. And the Laodicean church was sadly one of them that was very much represented in those statistics. But let's look at the address we see in verse, eight, verse 14 this morning, the first part of verse 14, the address. Laodicea was, was renowned for its prosperity. Uh, the local inhabitants were, were proud of their city as a, as a banking center. Uh, it was situated in a fertile valley at the junction of, of several important trade routes. So it had become considerably wealthy. And when the earthquake of AD 60 devastated the whole region, the city was promptly rebuilt without any appeal to the Roman government for the customary um, help. So they were self-sufficient and had much to boast about, especially the famous medical school that was connected there in the city with the temple of Esculapus. And physicians from all over the world would come there to buy the ointment that was prepared for eye disorders, especially pink eye. And the city was well known also for the manufacture of um, cloth and garments and carpets from the valuable wool of the local sheep in the, in the area. Um, so this, the clothes and the material were, were opulent and often black in the color. But the people of Laodicea were sadly... The church was sadly very much influenced by the the culture around them. Uh, The city was prosperous. The city was comfortable. And this had a negative effect on the church. And we see that from the context of the letter 
It is apparent that one of the major causes of this church's spiritual bankruptcy was her self-sufficiency, her dependence on her wealth rather than her dependence on God. So this local church had become self-satisfied. It had become self-assured. And as we will see, the result was that she became irrelevant. She became irrelevant in God's eyes. She became irrelevant in the Great Commission. And rather than these believers affecting society as they should have, changing society for the glory of God, it was the surrounding society that ended up changing them. The local church here in Laodicea was in need of reformation. They were in need of repentance. But yet in her self-righteousness, she did not even realize it herself. We see the description here of the Lord. The description in verse 14. The Lord described himself to the church in three ways. We see there in verse 14. The Amen, the faithful and the true, witness, and then thirdly, the beginning of the creation of God. So firstly, he described himself as the Amen. And the basic the meaning of the word Amen is, so be it. When we pray and we use the word Amen at the end of the prayer, we are simply affirming the words um, that have been prayed, the words that have been spoken. Another way to say it could be, may these things be so. We are agreeing with them. But Amen is a, is a far stronger word than we sometimes realize. As used in scripture, the word often carries the idea of, a, of an oath, the idea of a, of a promise. And this is important because of what follows. Secondly, the Lord identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. Um, he is the one on whose word we may eternally depend. Because he always keeps his word. He is the covenant faithful covenant keeper. And his word is unchangeable. His oath he will keep to the very end. And this is a, a wonderful blessing and something we can depend on. But it is also a frightening thought. It is a frightening thought, especially for these Laodiceans. Um, sometimes these words bring promise, they bring comfort, they bring blessing. But sometimes they are words which promise judgment and, and retribution. And either way, Jesus Christ always keeps his word. And here he assures the, the Laodiceans that he is bearing faithful and true testimony concerning their church, which sadly wasn't a very good testimony. But third, the Lord identified himself as the, the beginning of the creation of God. And this, of course, does not mean that God created him. And this is a verse that the, the Jehovah Witnesses go to to, to, try and, to try and prove that. But that is not what this verse is, is saying. They, they claim to be uh, rich. They claim to be wealthy. And they claim to be, have need of, of nothing. We see that in verse 17. But here in this passage, we see that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And that's how he is identifying himself. He wants them to understand that they, they are in need of him. In Colossians chapter 1 verse, verse 15, we see clearly that Christ is the origin. 
He is the creator himself. His word spoke. He's the one who spoke and worlds came out of his, his mouth. He is the origin. He is the beginning of creation. That's what this, this passage means. This is how the Lord is identifying himself. You know, the ethos of this church was sadly self-sufficient. Let's remember that. They were not depending on the creator of the universe for anything. They were depending on themselves. They claimed to be rich. They claimed to be wealthy. It says in verse 17 that they had need of nothing. That's a frightening statement. And I hope that doesn't resonate with you this morning. But perhaps they were thinking, you know, who is going to criticize us? Who in the world could possibly say anything bad about us? And here the Lord is standing up and he's saying, I am. I am the one with all authority. Listen to me. Look at the complaint he has against them in verse 15. The complaint. Sometimes we fool ourselves and it's so easy to do that, isn't it? As churches, we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that, that we are spiritually healthy and that our, that our Christian life is good and that our homes are, are good and well when in fact we need help, when in fact we're not spiritually healthy. The church of Laodicea was self-deceived about her spiritual health. Um, look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Lord tells him here, I know your works. Some commentators kind of interpret this um, the, the rest of the verse there by being either cold nor hot as, as people who are spiritually alive. Those who are spiritually alive are the ones that are, are hot and they have a, a transformed life. They are on fire for the Lord. And the spiritually cold people, on the other hand, are understood as those who, who have rejected Jesus, who are in sin, who are living a nominal Christian lifestyle. The, the lukewarm are... Um, Interpreted in, in verse 16 as, as those who are not genuinely saved and those who have openly rejected the, the gospel. But I, I don't think this is the correct interpretation of this verse. And the reason I say that is because of verse 15. Look at the second part of verse 15 where, where Christ says, Would that you were either hot or cold. So he's saying, I want you to be hot. Or I want you to be cold. One of the two. So Christ wants these Christians to be one of them. So one of them, both of them are good. He's not asking them to be something that is bad. Either be hot or either be cold. And here is where the the geography of, of Laodicea helps us understand what Christ intended for his original audience. They would have understood these words. So Laodicea was... Located between Heropolis, which was to the north, and Colossia, which was to the east. 
It was like a triangle. And Hierapolis was, was known for its steaming springs, the hot water springs. And Colossae was famed for its icy, cold water, mountain water. And both the, the hot springs of Hierapolis and the cold streams of Colossae were beneficial to those living in the, in the different regions. And Laodicea herself didn't have her own natural form of, of water. So these hot waters, they wanted to pipe in from Hierapolis. And they were beneficial also for their medicinal value. And of course they wanted to pipe in the cold water from Colossia as well. And this would be beneficial for, for those in the desert, those who had been traveling. And, and it was refreshing, it was cold. Um, so they built these aqueducts and they built these pipes to bring the water into Laodicea between um, bringing these, these, these hot water and cold water pipes into the city. But however, as soon as they, they did that, as soon as the water traveled on these aqueducts into the, into the city, the hot water became kind of lukewarm and the cold water became lukewarm as well. And by the time the water reached Laodicea, it was no longer beneficial. The hot water was no longer useful, and the cold water was no longer refreshing. They had the potential to be good, but they ended up becoming useless. The water was, was useless. It was, it was good for nothing. So the original audience would have understood that analogy. And that is why Christ said, I wish that you were either hot or that you were, were cold. And the problem was the, the Laodiceans were neither. They were in the middle. They were sitting on the fence. And the Lord saw this church as, as useless. And he says to them, he threatens to vomit them from his mouth. Now one commentator explains the problem with the church in Laodicea. He says the particular work which is viewed as ineffective, is that of the efforts to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unbelievers of the city were receiving neither spiritual healing nor life because the church was not actively fulfilling its role of witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were irrelevant when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it came to the things of the Lord, they were useless. This church was useless. On the outside, well, according to worldly terms, they were prosperous, they were, they were rich, they had need of nothing. But in God's eyes, they were useless. And the Lord says to them in verse 17, You are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Those are terrible indictments to hear from the Lord himself. Terrible. But despite their spiritual uselessness, the Laodiceans continue to boast. They continue to say that they were rich. They continue to say that they were wealthy. They continue to say that they had need of, of nothing. And the problem was, these church members were comfortable. They were comfortable in this, in this muck, their spiritual muck. 
They had conformed completely to the culture around them. They'd become just like the world. Christ's words must make us examine ourselves this morning. Remember, this is written to the church in Laodicea, but it is also applicable for us this morning. We need to examine ourselves. Do we, do we find ourselves saying things like this, that I'm, that I'm rich, that you know, I'm prosperous? Do you find yourself saying things like, I have need of, of nothing? And if you do, then we need to hear Christ's words this morning. That we are wretched. That we are pitiable. We are poor. And we need Christ. This church needed Christ. Look at verse 16, the warning. We see the warning that the Lord gives this church. This Lord's des- our Lord's desire for this congregation was that they be useful. He didn't just want to discard them. He didn't just want to destroy them as they richly deserved. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to be hot. He wanted them to be cold. He wanted them to be useful. He wanted them to be spiritual thirst quenches to the community around them for which they were originally called to do. But sadly they weren't. Just like the lukewarm water that reached their their own city, in spite of the great promise of its source, the church offered nothing. They offered nothing by way of spiritual benefit to to the neighbors, to the society, to the culture around them. One commentator said, Hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless for either purpose and can serve only as an emetic. Only as an emetic. And that's why the Lord threatened to vomit them out. John MacArthur, he said, Some churches make the Lord weep, others make him angry, but the Laodicean church made him sick. The Laodicean church made him sick. I hope that's not true of us this morning. I hope that's not true of you this morning. I hope that's not what the Lord would say to you one day. I hope that's not true of your family spiritual state. We see, furthermore, the Laodiceans were blind. We know that the the city was well known for this production of this eye ointment. And the the medical school that was there was was famous for producing this. But yet the Lord said, you are blind. You are blind. And then he counsels him. He gives him advice to anoint their eyes with with this potion that only he could give. He's not talking physically here, folks. He's talking spiritually. Despite the fact that the city was, was also known for their textile production, especially for the black wool and the products that they, that they made there, the Lord reveals that they were naked. They were naked. And of course, to the, the casual observer, the city did not seem to be poor. The city did not seem to be blind. The city did not seem to be naked. But when the Lord looked at the church... When the Lord looked at the church in this city, this was precisely their condition. And in worldly terms, doubtless, 
They were one of the most prosperous and one of the most beneficial cities for the economy, no doubt. But when it came to the Lord's economy, he declared this church as to be useless. It's a stinging indictment upon this, this church. And in summary, this local church was, was living a lie. They were living a lie. They were self-sufficient. They were self-righteous. And therefore, they were self-deceived. She professed Christianity. She wore the, the cross around the neck like most Christians do. And all that glitters is not gold. They professed Christianity, but they professed a lie. She was unmoved. She was untouched. She was barren in her spiritual life. Her light that was supposed to shine on a hill was buried beneath the the bush of self-righteousness. Christ denounced her as being useless in the society around her. In a word, she was irrelevant. She was irrelevant. And this brings us to to an important question by way of, of application this morning. Here's a question we should all ask ourselves. Now, what impact is, is your professed Christianity having in your home, number one? What is your professed Christianity having in your home, amongst your parents, amongst your children, amongst your spouse? Number two, what impact is your professed Christianity having in your society, in your neighborhood, in the people around you? Do your neighbors know that you are a Christian? Do your neighbors know that you love Jesus? Do your neighbors know your commitment to Christ? Number three, what impact is your professed Christianity having in your workplace? Do your work colleagues know that you are a Christian? I heard one pastor tell the story of a men's breakfast that he attended and he was invited to come and preach. And one of the men came to him afterwards, very excited. And he said, Pastor, you won't believe. Um, here's my friend from work who I invited to, to church. And we've been working together for, for five years. And he didn't know I was a Christian. And I didn't know he was a Christian. But here we are together, Christians. And the pastor looked at him. And said, no, that's not, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. He said, you both need to be born again. And what the pastor was saying is, it's, it's inconceivable to think that you can be a Christian and the world around you doesn't know about it. I mean, that's a useless Christian. That's, that's a useless profession. That's useless Christianity. Just like the church here in Laodicea. And here's another question. If you were removed from your home, if you were removed from your family, if the Lord took you away, if the Lord removed you from your city where you are, if the Lord removed you from the workplace where you are, what moral and spiritual influence would be lacking because of your departure? And furthermore, if God were to take our church God were to take us as a church 
away from this city? Would the community notice? Would the community notice that New Life Church is not here? But the power of the local church for good in a community is determined not by her becoming like the community, not by her becoming like the culture, but rather in her being different, in her being holy like her master. Different from the self-righteous and self-sufficient culture that surrounds us. Now, all too often, local churches fail in the same way that this church did in Laodicea. And if we are not careful, our local church will embrace this same sinful, carnal, worldly ethos of self-sufficiency that is prevalent in our modern day and age. We spend more money on pet food than we do when it comes to the gospel. How much money do we give to Christ? How much money do we give to animals? As believers in the local church, we need to submit to Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the one that redeemed us from our sins. Christ is the one who deserves our service, who deserves our, our loyalty. We need to live in dependence of him, not independent from him. And our gospel waters need to flow. We need to be these conduits, not these, not these dams that store all the, the blessings, not willing to give them out. We need to be these thirst quenchers that give the society the, the living water that they need. God intends for us to, to offer the world the gospel hope. He intends for us to be competent when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. I mean, do you know what the gospel is? Before we point fingers at the American churches, let's point fingers at ourselves this morning. Do you know what the gospel is? If somebody came to you tomorrow and asked you, what is the gospel? Can you share that with him? Are you competent? Are you are you loving the gospel? Are you passionate about the things of the Lord? The Lord wants us to be competent. He wants us to be spiritually healing those that are in, in need. And we need to be relevant, folks. We need to be relevant for the things of the Lord. Not irrelevant, not useless. Observe the command here from the Lord in verse 18. My fifth point this morning. The command. The words that follow would have been very encouraging for the believers in Laodicea. In verse 19, the Lord says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The Lord was rebuking them, not because he hated them, but because he loved them. He cared for them. And he loved them far too much to just leave them in their sinful state. As a parent, I'm sure you can understand that analogy. And Christ offered them three things here. Three features here for the Laodiceans, which I would have understood, which I would have connected with. 
because they were known for their wealth, they were known for their garments, and they were known for their, their eye ointment. But Christ offers them, number one, spiritual gold. He offers them garments. And he offers them sight. And notice how he offers it to them in, in verse 18. First, he, he counseled them to have their walk transformed. Gold refined in the fire. This wasn't just normal gold. This was refined gold. And of course, this is a reference to, to trials that purify us, that sanctify us, that make us more holy. And Peter made this clear in, in his first epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He said, That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I remember as a youngster going to listen to Richard Wurmbrandt um, speak at our church. Richard Wurmbrandt was imprisoned in Romania for 14 years because of his, his love for Christ. He also stood against the communist government of the day. And as a result, he was thrown into prison for 14 years. He was tortured in prison with his wife, Sabrina. But after his release from prison, he and his wife dedicated the rest of their lives to helping other Christians who were being persecuted for their beliefs. And he wrote more than 18 different books. And the most famous one is Tortured for Christ. They also started an international organization called Voice of the Martyrs, which continues today to aid Christians around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. But I remember him praying. Out of everything that he showed us that day, I remember his prayer. Now, I remember the church in Romania at that time and, and in the surrounding countries in the communist countries were undergoing terrible persecution and so to hear him testify and to hear him pray was, was, was something I'll never forget. And his prayer was for the church of the West. He was praying for the church of the West, the comfortable church of the West, the church that wasn't being persecuted, the church that was comfortable. And he prayed for them. And this pastor understood by his own experience that comfort and financial prosperity is really one of the greatest tools and temptations that the devil uses to keep his church useless. To keep God's church useless. And he was praying that the Lord would bring trials. He was praying that the Lord would bring persecution on the West to purify the church. To sanctify the church so that the church would no longer be comfortably complacent in their, in their faith. And this is what the church in Laodicea needed. If they wanted to be useful, they had to be willing to go through these fires that the Lord would bring upon them. They would need to learn these very hard lessons that money doesn't buy eternal happiness. That money doesn't buy us eternal comfort. And money doesn't buy us peace with God. 
You know, obedience is costly, folks. And the church needed to hear this. Obedience is costly. But if we will be used of God to impact our culture with the gospel, then we must be willing to pay the price. We must be willing to be obedient, even in difficult times, even when it hurts. The Lord did not tell us to be a light on a hill so that we can shine our light in each other's faces on a Friday morning when we come to church. But rather so that we would go, so that we would shine the lights in other people's faces that don't know Christ. That we would be the light on the hill that everybody would see, not hidden under a bush. Christ wants us to be intentional about sharing our faith. He wants us to share the gospel with those in our communities and around the world who are in darkness. You know, I understand that that we are to be wise. I understand we, we are not to be foolish in how we share the gospel. I get that. You know, but since I have arrived in the UAE, I've heard more people give me advice on how not to share the gospel. How should we share the gospel? Where's that advice? Now, perhaps we are too comfortable in our closed, gated communities. Are we being useful or useless to the kingdom of God? Are we looking for excuses? Or are we looking for opportunities to share Christ? Are we being intentional? Or are we being irrelevant you know I don't mean that we should go and pick fights in the community but we should be willing to count the cost we should be willing to stand for truth no matter what the the outcome is and I'm afraid that too many of us in the church are preoccupied with comfort we want to be delivered from discomforts We want to be delivered from the uncomfortable things around us. We're not willing to suffer at all for the sake of Christ. We believe that God is somehow obligated to deliver us from all of our troubles. And that's what we signed up for. For comfortable Christianity. Our concern is not the cross. Not the cross where our Savior suffered and died for the sins of the world. God wants our lives fulfilled. Of course He does. But let's remember the New Testament church. They were living fulfilled lives while they were being eaten by lions for their faith. That was their best life now because they knew what awaited them. When they reached eternity. Our life is not about comforts. Our life is not about being delivered from the troubles of this world. Our life is about Jesus Christ. And the joy and the fullness that comes with obediently serving Him. Christ counseled this church to buy from him. 
You told them to buy white garments. White garments so that they may clothe themselves in the shame of their nakedness. So that the world wouldn't see that. Remember Laodicea was famous for the black wool. But it was a sinful, it symbolized a sinful garment. Which unbelievers were clothed in. But Christ offered them white garments. He offered them white garments. Which symbolized the righteousness that he would, that he would cover their shame with. That he would cover their shame with. And sadly, this church had become self-righteous. They didn't want the righteousness of Christ. They weren't interested in fulfilling all righteousness. They weren't interested in pursuing the righteousness of Christ. We need to look to Christ alone as a source of our righteousness. We need to look to Christ alone as a source of our satisfaction. We need to look to Christ alone as a source of our joy. And not in the things around us. We need to allow our Savior to humble us and make us effective in a world that, that needs Him, that needs Christ. But thirdly, the Lord counseled them to buy this ointment for their eyes as well. So that they would see. So that they could be effective in, in healing other people. They needed their eternal perspective changed. That's basically what it comes down to. They had a temporary perspective. Their eyes were fixed on the temporary, not on the eternal. And that needed to change. They lacked a God-centered, eternal perspective. And as a local church, we need to be delivered from this worldly thinking, this worldliness. And the Lord challenged the Laodiceans in verse 19. He says to them, be zealous. Repent, he says. And they were not being called upon to merely think about what the Lord was saying. Or whether they thought it was agreeable or not. Whether they wanted to obey or not. They were being commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the words and immediately respond. Christ had already called on the Ephesus church. He had called on the, the Sardis church to repent. But the situation here in Laodicea is worse. It's the worst situation out of the seven. And Christ would spit them out. He would vomit them out. If they would not respond. If they would not hear his plea. And Christ said in verse 19, he loved them. And he's reminding them. Of his love for them. And it's because of his love for them that, that he wanted to discipline them. He wanted to reprove them. So be encouraged that the Lord loves his bride. Be encouraged that the Lord loves his, his children. And the Lord loves his bride too much to remain silent when she needs to be corrected. And he doesn't refuse to rebuke, rebuke her. In Revelation 3 verse 20, maybe one of the most precious verses in the Bible. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I've heard this verse 
been used by evangelists many times, and, and I've used this verse also in the wrong context many times. And often we hear it like Jesus is standing at the sinner's heart's door, knocking, please, can I, can I come in? Please let me in. He's awaiting the sinner to open his heart and to let Jesus in. But there's a problem here. There's a problem here with this context because it comes from the church in Laodicea. And the, and the problem with the picture is that the master, that the Lord of the church is standing on the outside of the church. He should be inside the church. He is the head of the church. And he's been pushed outside. The doors have been closed. And he's knocking. And he's knocking. The one who purchased the church with his blood is knocking. He's been locked outside. The very one who owns the house is knocking. Please let me in. Someone described the scene as a wealthy man who has taken pity upon a poor beggar. He welcomed the beggar into his home. The man fed and clothed the beggar and he housed the beggar. But returning from work one day, he finds himself locked outside as the beggar sits comfortably inside. Exactly like the behavior of these Laodicean believers. The one who graciously created the household is the one who's been rejected. But without him coming in to the house, this beggar is going to starve to death. He's going to use up all the food. He's going to use up all the resources and he will starve to death unless he opens the door. That's a perfect analogy. We are sustained by Christ and Christ alone, folks. We are not self-sufficient and self-dependent. We need Christ for everything. And the Lord promised that if the church would open the door, he would enter and he would commune with them. He would have fellowship with them, intimate fellowship. But they needed to open the doors. And if they didn't, he promised them that he would act in judgment should they refuse to repent. When we unlock Christ out of our, our lives, when we lock him out of our churches by refusing his authority, then we commit the same tragic sin with disastrous consequences. I will not submit to your authority, Lord, because I know better. I know better. But when we open our hearts to him, we experience that forgiveness. We experience that joy untold that only he can give us. A church that is faithful to the Lord will experience trials, will experience suffering. But the promise of Christ is that he will bless her with this intimate fellowship. Notice the promise in verse 21. The Lord says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. John MacArthur says to enjoy fellowship with Christ in the kingdom and throughout eternity is sufficient blessing beyond all comprehension. But Christ offers more, promising to seat believers on the throne he shares with the Father. What an incredible blessing 
Not only do we get rewards, but we get to reign with him. He who has overcome the world. We get to reign with him. He who overcomes the carnality of this world. We get to reign with him. Look at the last appeal in verse 22. My last point in verse 22. For the seventh and final time in these letters, the Lord commands his church. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the tense used in this verse gives the sense that the Lord is continuing to to speak. And that we must continue to listen. It's not just a once-off. The Lord spoke to each and every single one of these seven churches. And he urged them to obey what he had said. And he exhorts us today to listen. To listen to what he continues to say to us through his unfailing word. In conclusion, this Laodicean church made their creator sick. And what was worse is that they were, they were unable to discern that. They had become lukewarm in their faith. They had become lukewarm in their fellowship with God. They had become lukewarm in every area of their life, in their prayer life, in the reading of the word. They lack care. And they lack concern for the things of God. They deceived others and they deceived themselves into thinking that the measuring rod to see if they were spiritual lied in how much money they were making. And they had become self-indulgent, self-centered, and believed this is what Jesus wanted them to be. They believed a lie. They believed a lie. They had no commitment to Christ. They had no commitment to the gospel. They had no commitment to the Great Commission. They had no love for the lost or any desire to win the lost. Their commitment was to how much money they could make. That was their goal. That was the goal of their Christianity. What a wasted life. I recently sent out a request to the ministry leaders of New Life Church to take some time to visit a a young man who has been in hospital for the last five months and recovering from a stroke. And thank you to all the people who did go out of their comfort zone to meet this man and pray with their family. But his father was telling me that the fee for the the hospital where he is being rehabilitated is 66,000 dirham per month. And the fee for the ICU where he was since moved from was around 700,000 dirham. Of course, he was in terrible debt. And he was selling his boat. He was selling his cars, which he had bought over the years that he's been working here in the UAE. He was selling his jet skis, which he had, and other valuables which the family had incurred over the years. And we would all do that for our children, wouldn't we? I mean, we would do that because we love our children, isn't it? But Cole made a good point after our 
our visit that night, you know, he said, all of these things, all of these sacrifices that the Father is willing to make at the end of the day are, are temporary. But what are we willing to give up for the sake of the kingdom? What are we willing to invest in for the sake of the gospel? I'm reminded of the parable Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13. The one where the man finds a treasure hidden in this empty field. And he goes and sells all of his belongings so that he can go and purchase this field because he knows what is there. This valuable treasure that's worth owning, that's worth possessing. Christ is this valuable treasure, folks. Christ is this pearl of great price. But have we counted the cost? Have we counted the cost? Let me finish with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor that lived during the Second World War that opposed the Nazis and was even involved in trying to, trying to oust Adolf Hitler. And he ended up dying for his faith. He ended up dying, being shot by the Nazis because of his, his love for Christ. But he wrote a book called Costly Discipleship. And his words, they have much credibility. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Jesus is worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy of our obedience simply because he has paid the highest possible price. He has ransomed, he has purchased his children with his own blood. There is no higher price. There is no higher calling. There is no higher priority than to serve our Redeemer God. And we have one life to live, folks. Let's not waste it on things that don't matter to God. Let's spend our lives for the fame of our Savior. If you are not a believer here this morning, if you have never counted the cost and have never repented of your sins and turned to Christ in faith, may today be the day of your salvation. But believers here this morning, let me ask you that question one more time. What impact 
is your professed Christianity having in your home? What impact is your professed Christianity having in your workplace, in your school, in your community? And again, if you were removed from your home and family, what spiritual and moral influence would be lacking? And if God were to take New Life Church away from this place, would the community notice? Are we being useful or are we being useless for the kingdom of God? Are we looking for excuses or are we looking for opportunities to share Christ? Are we being intentional or are we being irrelevant with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Father, we bow our heads this morning. We pray, Lord, to you to please help us. Please help us this morning, Lord, to see the seriousness of sin, to see how sin creeps, creeps in and destroys, to see how the lust of the flesh and the the lust of the world and the, the pride of life will ultimately make us useless. So Lord, we pray this morning for your spirit to open our eyes. Lord, this has been a a hard series to preach because, Lord, there is just so much truth that is applicable for us today. Lord, as we get into our, our nice cars after church this morning, help us to remember the cost that you paid for our redemption the cost that you call us to help us to see that grace is not cheap and help us to live lives that are worthy of the price that you paid for us. Help us not to be irrelevant, Lord. Help us to be useful. Help us to be intentional this week. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share our faith and may we never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we never be ashamed of denying you, Lord Jesus Christ. May they never be true of us. We pray that you'd forgive us, Lord, if we are guilty of that, if we have denied you this week, if we have sought our comforts, Lord, and we've, rather than seeking your glory, we pray for your forgiveness, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would hear your offer this morning that we would run to our Savior, that we would love the white garments that he makes available to us, that we would love the the precious gold refined in the fire, that we would love the ointment that he is willing to give us, that we may see clearly, that we may live more properly for the kingdom of God. And may Christ become more and more sweet as our sin becomes more and more bitter. So Lord, we pray for your spirit to do the work of God that needs to be done in us. For the sake of your great name, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Gareth, for the truth of your word. And may it continue to resonate within our hearts throughout this week as well. Please stand with us as we close out the service today in a song of praise.